Hi, Dave Abel here from Unbounded. I'm the Chief Academic Officer of English Language Arts, and I'm here with Cheryl Dauberton, who is the author of the Practical Instructional Planning Guide, Common Core Unit by Unit, published by Heinemann. She is both the former Director of Professional Development for Expeditionary Learning and was instrumental in the development of the Engage New York modules for New York State, which is how we came to know each other. Together, these experiences have shown her the transformational power for both teachers and learners of immersion in an engaging, challenging curriculum. So Cheryl, welcome. Hi, Dave. You know, that's my attempt at a bio, but tell me a little bit about yourself more than the bio and what you do and why you do it. Well, I, I started my career actually as a journalist. I went to um, Syracuse University and uh, learned how to be a great writer and was doing some work as a newspaper reporter and, and foundering, you know, sort of looking for my place in the world and decided, well, I could teach kids to write. So I went back to school and became an English teacher. Um, but right away, right away was sort of questioning the practices and wondering if I was doing the right things and, you know, trapped in feeling like, you know, this, the curriculum here is asking me to talk about all these books and, you know, the goal is for kids to know what's happening in these books and how is that real and, and why does it matter? And I, I had a lot of success being the sort of arts and crafts English teacher, you know, um, and got a lot of celebration for that. Like, oh, let's do this cool outline of Odysseus and, you know, fill in his, you know, fill in his character traits and kids liked it and families seemed satisfied. And still I was like really questioning myself and saying, like, is this really you know, is this really the job? Like, it doesn't feel like I'm teaching them enough. And I was very fortunate to start working with a um, special education literacy specialist who just opened my eyes to all the things I didn't know. Um, And we changed our practice after that. And then we ended up sort of on the road. So that took me to professional development. And I have been doing professional development ever since in one way or another. In my time at, at Expeditionary Learning, I was deeply immersed through the great culture there in um, project-based learning. And uh, it was funny. It was sort of a step back and a step forward because step back was like, whoa, this can slip over into slippery kids not teaching and learning. Sorry, kids not learning. But then the Common Core Standards came along, and it was an opportunity to sort of like right the ship in terms of rigor and outcomes and, and being sure that all these projects that kids were doing actually got them somewhere meaningful. And that's pretty much what brings me here today. Awesome. So uh, that's a great segue. You've been working with teachers and working in professional development and curriculum since before the inception of the Common Core. But after the Common Core, what are the most powerful changes in teacher practice that you have seen? So many and all good and all around the questions I think I was asking myself early in my career. So the biggest thing that I see that is so heartening is the radical change in teachers' expectations of mm-hmm. kids. And I can remember you were there too when we rolled out the um, the curriculum on Engage New York, and right away teachers looked at it and said, "Oh well, God, my kids can never do that. Like my kids can't do that." I mean, that was like almost a resounding refrain: "My kids can't do that." And whatever we could somehow convince them to go give it a whirl, and I can remember people texting and emailing and calling and coming back to the, you know, training sessions that we're having and saying, you're never going to believe what happened. You know, you're never going to believe what my special education students are doing. You're never going to believe what my English language learners are doing. And somehow it was a scaffold to, to help teachers like take that leap of faith that kids could do more than they were asking them. And I think, I think no matter what, I don't think people will ever, will ever 
slip back from that vision that fourth graders could be here and seventh graders could be here and so 12th graders could be here. And I think that's been really something to be proud of in terms of the work that we did. And I think another shift that's, that's super cool is, you know, moving, sort of broadening what kids are reading, mm-hmm. not just in types, but in voices and perspectives. It, yes, for sure, in fiction and nonfiction, but the, the push for texts that represent different cultures and, and different ideas, I see a very widespread acceptance that they have to read um, different things and, and examine different people's ideas. And then, can I add a third? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, this was, a, this was a shift I really had to make myself, which is n- not writing about the ideas that you learned from the reading, but actually writing about and from the reading. Mm. And I can remember lots of early conversations, even with David Lieben, where he was like, no, you're, you're, you're not getting it. You're like, you're missing it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I was so trained to say, like, they're going to read all this stuff and they're going to develop ideas, concepts of freedom, for example. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to write about freedom. But I never asked them to, like, draw from the text yeah. to write about freedom. And that was a, that's a, I see people not, you know, not doing that anymore. They're really using this idea of drawing from the text and writing with evidence and details. It's been exciting to see teachers really take on this question of levels and reading levels and really experimenting and pushing themselves to say, like, I don't have to hold kids to something because I have some external measure that says, you know, they're a label, you know, of some kind, a number or a letter. As I've worked with teachers, it's been really interesting to help them experiment with this idea of levels and how we, you know, how we can break kids out of those boxes and and give them access to things that they might not have read in the past. And so as we've learned about sequencing texts, for example, and, and the power of building knowledge, and so, wow, that kid actually read that thing that I never thought they could read. I can just see people right on the edge of, of sort of giving up this idea that they that all kids have to read, you know, at a certain level at certain times. And that's not to say that there potentially isn't reasons for some kids to, you know, have access to different texts, but it's it's not predominant anymore. It's part of the package as opposed to the package, you know, what what we've been doing. And I think that's been really powerful. I had this moment in a classroom. I was watching kids work, and there was this one little girl, and she was, like, standing up, and, like, every part of her body was vibrating with energy, and she was leaned over her desk, and she was digging into this text, like, you, with her body almost. You could see her working this text. And I said, wow, what are you doing? And it looks so, like you're having so much fun. And she said, she looked up at me, and she said, my teacher this year thinks I am so much smarter. Mm. She's giving me a lot of really hard things to read. And that's really significant. You know, it's kids' self-concept is changing because we're changing and we're, you know, offering them challenge that's so necessary. So you are seeing instances where, you know, there's this sort of dream that really the, the Liebens planted in my head of like, like marching into the classroom, taking the, you know, bins with the letters on them, dumping them on the floor and reorganizing them by topic. You are seeing that to an extent? I'm seeing it to an extent. I think teachers are halfway there. So what they're trying to do is some of like, who cares? It doesn't matter the level and some like sort of clinging to that Mm -hmm. because there's an infrastructure that's been built around them that says you got to do this level of reading thing. And when it hits them in the face everywhere they go, how do they have confidence that, you know, fundamentally teachers want to teach kids to read. And so they're afraid because they care, yeah. you know, and so we have to just keep talking to them and showing them and, and, uh, you know, giving them models where it feels okay to, to make these leaps and that you're not going to leave kids in the dust, you know, while you're, do- while you're making these changes in your paradigm. 
This is an infrastructure, and I'd also argue there's a market. That's a word you could use. Yes. <laughs> what are the sort of prevailing and persistent myths that you see that are like harder for people to let go of, or and why do you think they prevail and persist? Well, I think one myth is around this idea of informational text and what it is and, and how terrible it is and how it's going to ruin kids' lives and how you can't read Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, which is fascinating since Shakespeare is specifically mentioned in the standard. So that sort of prevails, and I, I think it's, an, an, it's a way to people put up a shield and say, mm-hmm. I don't have to pay attention to that. It's been so much fun to show people models of really engaging, really you know, worthwhile curriculum that incorporates great literature and a whole bunch of other stuff that's actually not, that's actually purposeful and um, engaging and also great and builds kids' knowledge. So I think that's a myth that persists. I think people are really confused about text-dependent questioning still. Mm-hmm. And I think we, I think they finally understood what text-dependent questioning is, but now I think there's sort of like a murdering of text through every text-dependent question I could ever think of to ask, you know, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. It, it's such an interesting thing when you do the work of, of helping teachers learn, of honoring what they're doing and the growth they've already made. So, mm-hmm. hello, we're doing text-dependent questioning. Hooray. Yeah. And was there a reason why we had to ask 25, you know? And then you <laughs> ask that question, they say, yeah, because I'm trying to do all the standards, you know? And so they're always coming from this place of, like, I'm trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And getting people to sort of like loosen up and look at kids. Yeah. Like do the right thing and notice what your kids are doing, you know, and, and be in the room with them and, and make it make it sing. But I think, you know, they're new learners. And so they're disfluent in their practice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the fact that they are doing the practice, they will get the feedback and they will and they will move along and they'll do and they'll be okay. I, I think also there's sort of this still disconnect between um, in general between reading and writing. And so they're not necessarily reading to write anything of value or purpose. I think people are messy with arguments. So I see a lot of argument writing that's really not argument writing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe writing is a net. We've spent so much time and energy talking about reading. Maybe we need to, you know, by we, I mean like people who are in the conversation and trying to lead um, systems forward, shift our focus to writing so that we can start to move that too. I think that's still a kind of an untouched frontier in terms of big change. Yeah, I would agree with that. As long as we're talking about these kind of things, where do, what about the role of speaking and listening and sort of like collaborative conversations? It's been great how, as teachers have learned to ask better and richer questions, the role of collaboration and, and helping each other out in the classroom and you know, like listening to each other has like also grown. So, you know, it, I feel like when teachers make it rigorous enough, there's a real reason to check in with your neighbor and be mm. like, I think it's this, you know? And so moving the level of questioning and moving the types of questions has given kids a real reason to have to work together and to collaborate and two brains are better than one and, you know, nine brains are better than two. I think there's been, again, sort of like a lot of confusion around this idea of protocols as a sort of a recipe and you have to do it this way. Speaking and listening protocols were created and are used to give voice to all kids in the classroom Mm. and and to ensure equity and to ensure that Every kid has a chance to speak. So it's not so much about the rules as it is about, like, are you hearing enough voices? And does the protocol then create the space for, you know, Dave to get brave enough and practice his ideas enough with his neighbor so that when I cold call him, he has, you know, something great to say. And so that's a place where I think, again, we can sort of help people sharpen their message and and understand why they're doing what they're doing. 
you know, we've been very concrete thus far, and so now I'm going to ask you to sort of go in the realm of fantasy, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. And if you could wave a magic wand and convince every teacher at, let's say, the secondary level to make one change in their instructional practice, what would it be? I would, I'm so glad you asked me this question. I would wave the wand and have every teacher have kids write for a real audience outside of school. Really? Yep, because the, the need for craft comes into play when you're writing to an audience that you care about. And as much as my students cared about me, I'm still just the teacher, right? And it's still just writing for the teacher, and maybe it's writing for my peers. When you're writing for your city council, mm-hmm. you know, when you're writing to actually affect change and to actually bring some critical information to the community that you care about, your need for craft is exponentially larger. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm so interested in this conversation that teachers have that is about like, oh, they don't care, they're so lazy, you know, that why don't they write their, you know, whatever, use their apostrophes correctly or whatever. And the bottom line is there's no reason for it to them to, right? right? There's, no, there's nobody looking. What's my motivation? Exactly. Right. It, it, the grade is supposed to be my motivation? You know, that's nuts, right? right? I'm taking my work to city council. I'm sorry I keep bringing up that example. But, like, you know, I'm trying to create a change. I have just seen the most amazing and powerful and adult work from even young people because there's an authentic audience. Mm. And I think that's a largely unexplored territory. You know, we tend to hold school as a separate place in the community. And what happens in school is in school, and that's all there is to it. And if we could break those walls down and get more kids doing real work in the real world, I think we'd see things that would just blow our minds. And it would also show them, like, look, this writing is actually, it's not just for me. It actually is for a reason. And it actually means something. And this is how people in power or people who want to be in power communicate. This is the the dominant mode. If I could take the fantasy one step farther, I would have those real audiences giving kids feedback on their work. Because that blows their brains out. Like, here I am. Oh, my gosh. And now city's council is telling me whether my presentation was effective or not. And they're critiquing my work. And, again, talk about raising the level of rigor. Talk about raising, you know, the the need to know and the quality of what I'm going to do next time I'm communicating with an authentic audience. Instead, I think people are so surprised and so excited when kids actually do this now they get a lot of pats on the back like that's yep. great good yeah, for yeah, you yeah. and then they go home and say yeah it was okay you know this powerpoint presentation from the 10th grade no you know like take that opportunity to say it was okay and here's what you could have done better because those kids need to hear it's you got to be three more levels from where you are right now right it's not enough that you were just in the room talking to me it's not an, it's not special enough that you just showed up right right, right. really make it happen right so I would encourage teachers to pursue that like crazy. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Dave. That was wonderful. Good, Good to talk with you.